I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, theologian, mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living on Dakota and Anishinaabe land known as Minneapolis. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, a writer, scholar of belonging, album producer person, like someone who has an album in the world emergent strategist and pleasure activist living on Anishinaabe territory, currently known as Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World. Our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And this is our first sibling interview. I am so excited today because this whole season we've decided to dedicate to the intimate, sacred, strange, magical ground of siblings in movement. People who are dedicated to justice, dedicated to revolution, dedicated to changing the world, and are doing that with someone who they were born into the same family, raised in the same family, um, and, and then somehow both ended up in this radical work. We're really curious about what it takes to be siblings in movement, how we end up as siblings in movement, and how it shapes our work, what we can learn about each other, what we can offer to, to people who maybe need to recruit their siblings into movement. <laughs> um, <Yes>. and, <laughs> and excitingly, the seed of this idea yeah. came from um, multiple moments over many years between us and two of our favorite movement siblings. Yes. Leah and Naima Penniman, who we are so excited to welcome to the show. <laughs> welcome, Naima. Welcome, Leah. Um, I will say briefly that you all in the world probably know these these siblings um, in various ways. Naima yeah. is a poet, a healer, a farmer, um, like one of these magical human beings who does a ton of things to ideate and shift how we see the world. And one of the first ways I experienced Naima was as a visual artist um, who went to school <laughs> with Autumn. And I showed up and I, I was like, what is this incredible <laughs> display on abolition in prisons? <laughs> who is this person who's already thinking about these things that I don't even understand yet? And um, yeah. Autumn was like, that's my friend Naima. That's Naima. That's Naima. Um, and Leah is an incredible farmer, wrote the book Farming While Black, and has been really transforming the landscape of what it means to be doing food justice work. And the both of them are like, as far, I imagine you all both just running around acres and acres and acres of land um, in upstate New York while also then running everything else in the world. I, I don't know. Like if that's, always running. Yeah, always but to running. me, it's like just running around with what like deer. goats and buckets <laughs> farm things. So <laughs> I do know. <laughs> those are some 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 of our casual things about them. We're going to dive in much deeper um into who they are and what they're doing in the in this, but that's the penimens that we're coming into. And first we just like to start off with a check-in, right? How are we coming into this conversation? And um why don't we start with Naima? How are you, Naima? Thank you. Well, I am 
doing really well in this moment because I'm so ecstatic to be having this conversation amongst the four of us. I love sibling power. I love sibling movement power. And yeah, just been long anticipating this moment. So I'm feeling lit up inside. I'm feeling (laughs) nourished. I'm feeling on path, on purpose, and especially generous and loving and multidimensional and cooperative. I'm really appreciating this moment we're in, this time of thought and emergence and lengthening days and regeneration. So my spirit is is feeling really full in the midst of, you know, all the feels, but I'm really cherishing the flame dancing inside of me right now. So that's where I'm at. (laughs) Oh my, dang. I mean, as long as it's a flame inside of you, I think you're okay. That's that's the joy you give me. Right. I'm like, how am I going to match that level of Joy, Naima. Damn. So I am. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's true. I've been long anticipating. So one of the best things that ever happened in my life uh, is Naima. Maybe the best thing. Uh, But something that happened today that that really brought (laughs) that I feel like prepped me for this conversation is we were visiting. It's almost Pesach, the the Passover season. So we're visiting some uh, the grandparents and my children, Nishima and Emmett, who are 18 and 15 respectively, were goofing around with each other. And, you know, Nishima is climbing on Emmett's back and they're cuddling and laughing and exploring and playing. I was like, yo, Nai, we passed down the sibling love to the next generation. Like the two of them are besties. They have, they cherish and support each other. They have such an intimate friendship. And um, I don't think there's, a more powerful like type of re- relationship, more powerful oh, foundation than that. sibling love. So um, that mm-hmm. brought me a lot of joy. I and I'm like, swoon already. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Autumn, how are you doing today, sister? Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm toggling between two ends of feeling. I'm, uh-huh. I'm <laughs> so excited to be here. I'm so excited that we're finally having this conversation that feels like we've been, it's like we've been moving through time towards this moment for years. Um, So this is so good. I'll confess, I have had such a strange day. Um, (laughs) Strange in that I, my, my computer just died this morning. And I, um, well, actually, I guess I can say I feel fine about it. Um, <laughs> I, I messaged my coworkers and they were like, sounds like you have to take the day off now. And I was like, yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> um, and you know, and I got, they realized I got, it first. <laughs> right. I mean, that's usually how it happens for me with time off. It's like someone else is like, huh, sounds like, looks like you should. Um, but I, I just found myself um, unexpectedly with, with time to not be in front of a computer, time to not feel like I had to accomplish anything. So I've been moving really slowly today, um, which is feeling really good for my nervous system. There's like that mild stress of, um, did I accomplish everything that I needed to have accomplished by the end of this week? But I'm trying to just be open to the reality that I couldn't. And that's just, what happened? So I think it's good. I think it's good. It just feels a little odd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How are you, Adrian? Um, well, 
you know, this is the first um, podcast uh, episode that we're doing where I'm a fiance. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to put it in the video, but I was yes, like, that's love. not enough time. <laughs> I need more time for it. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, life is really, 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 and, and it's like the whole month has been like really high level, excellent level life things happening. Um, so I have to say, I'm like really good. Like I paid off a major debt, which I think we'll talk about at some point. Um, the IRS debt, you know, we've, we've had conversations here about what happened with me in the IRS, but I, I made major moves of paying off a big chunk of it that when it first came to me, I really was like, this will never be paid off. I will be in this purgatory of owing the IRS money that I don't have forever. And then I did serious financial planning and advisement and humbling myself and basically crawling on the financial floor of life for the past few years. And um, so that happened. I got engaged to my sweetheart um, who proposed in a very like romantic, like surprise public way that was like the most romantic. So romantic. <laughs> it was so awesome. Ever. It was so good. Um, there were balloons and there was a ring and there was like all the things that I, I again, I want to do whole shows about this stuff because I'm like, I'm not this kind of girl, but this shit is awesome. I love it. I'm here for it. I think everyone should try being a romantic fiance at least once in your life. Um, and then all kinds of other things have been happening too. I released an album with my friend Joshua Gabriel. Um, I turned in the first draft of a novella that is going to be published this fall. Like it just feels like spring is springing. I, you know, Naima, when you see that flame inside you, I just feel like there's like a wildfire in my heart right now. And I'm just like, um, Chani. I, I did like a, a, one of those like reading things with Channy Nicholas and she was like, this is your period where like things are going to go well. And then it's not going to go well, like in, you know, a little while, you know, and it's not going to go badly, but it's just not going to be this level of like, boom. Right. So she's like, harness the boom, let the boom happen. Like just go all out, mm -hmm. you know, be prolific, do everything you want to do in it. Um, because then, you know, the pendulum will swing and it'll be time of rest and more internal and all that kind of stuff. And I really appreciated that because I feel like I'm like, just like, oh yeah, how, how much good can I handle? You know, I, uh, it's Tony K. Bambara's uh, birthday week. And, you know, she asked us that question, the salt eaters, like, are you ready to be well? And I'm like, what does it feel like to practice being well? I'm in it right now. I'm practicing being well. And, and it feels, it feels amazing. It feels amazing. It feels like a lot of work over a long time and mm -hmm. I'm enjoying it. That. Well deserved. Yeah. 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 Did you see my ring? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yes. And, and like, did I mention? Also, <laughs> no, I'm literally <laughs> walking around waving goodbye backwards at people like, bye. Yes. You're yes. like Queen Elizabeth, like the, the circle oh, wave. Like, here's why we do this. Here's why we do this. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not angry about things. And so <laughs> now it's time. <laughs> To shift into, I was know, I was wondering like how are you going to transition the into the rage, flume of rage? The flume of rage because you know it's all about feeling the full of range of emotions, and I'm still really full of rage. <laughs> all of it, mm, heard that. All of it. So yeah. I could go first on the flume of rage, unless anyone else is like teed up. Or go teed for it. Up. Go for it. All if right. You're like ready. Go for it. Petty, angry. Yeah. 
Plume of rage. 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 So the thing that has been really frustrating me in many of our Plume of rage things have been related to COVID in different ways, and I think that's that's important. That's relevant. Um, mine is 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 tangentially related to that, which is I've been going to a lot of doctor's appointments lately for my arthritis and and just trying to really land some some new experiences with my knees and my hips and like wanting to be healthy. So I keep doing this thing where the doctor's appointment is scheduled and I, I prepare myself mentally, emotionally, and physically, like whatever the thing is, that is going to be the solution or the procedure is about to happen. Like we're doing it, right? <laughs> going in and I'm ready for it. So like, you know, I went in at one point ready for these like shots that they were going to put in my knees. I went in another time, like I'm ready for some gastrointestinal checkup or like, I'm not, I didn't eat since midnight, you know, I'm ready. And then I get there and it's like a pre-interview, right? They're like, (laughs) so it looks like you have issues with your knees. Yes. That's why I'm here. That's why I risked my life leaving the house during COVID to come be here, which I shouldn't do unless you're actually doing a procedure on me. We could have done this by video or a phone call. Like if you're just going to review my file and tell me what I already know, which is that I have arthritis and I do need a procedure, what's happening here. And, uh-uh. and, you know, when you're in the, in that doctoral power dynamic, right. Where you're like, okay, I don't want to go off on you or anything because I still need the procedure that hasn't happened today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I know my, I know that I needed this. That's why I'm here. So it makes, it really fills me with rage. Cause then I'm sitting there like, I'm, I'm hungry <laughs> um, and I jacked myself up to be in knee pain, like, a, or have a needles stuck in or something. I, you know, like, I'm like, I'm ready. And they're like, okay, well we can do that in a month. And I just feel like there needs to be a do better around that stuff where it's just like, this is just to make sure that you need what you need. We can do it by phone. It'll take 10 minutes of your life. Mm-hmm, you don't need mm-hmm. to come do this in our office and risk everything. So, and, and it does that eventually the risk everything part I think will pass, but I'll still feel this way. I still don't like my time (laughs) wasted. I still, (laughs) I'm just like, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if I didn't need some procedure to figure this out. Right. So that's my flume of rage. Wow. Yes. Mm. Mm. It does feel good to unload it. Autumn, what about you? It does feel good, doesn't it? Are you mad? Um, You know, sometimes I come in to record and I'm like, what could I possibly flume about? I feel fine. <laughs> and then other times I come in and and there's so many things going on um, that it's kind of overwhelming to pick just one. And of course, this <laughs> this last week in the world has been, or just in the U.S., has yeah. been given us plenty of things to be mad about. Um. I will say though, I think my flume is a little bit more personal right now. I I had this really upsetting um, harassment experience a couple of weeks ago, and um, a sexual harassment that became homophobic harassment, and in a public setting. And <clears throat> I was, you know, I was picking up my car from the shop and was followed from the parking lot into a building and back out into the parking lot by a very, very predatory person. And, and I think that 
uh, as as time has worn on since the incident, my flume has kind of evolved. Um, I mean, mm. at first I was just, you know, terrified and angry because those experiences yeah. are always really scary because you just don't know um, how it's going to end. You know, I was yeah. definitely was filled with that sort of the terror of like, I don't, I don't know if this person is going to actually leave me alone now that I'm yelling at him or whether he's going to escalate further. Um, then I found myself feeling really angry at myself mm. for, um, for uh, overriding my discomfort in what was happening as it was happening. Yes. Um, there was a particular moment where I was finishing up my business inside the building and saw that he had followed me to the part of the building that I was in and, um, knew that to leave the building, I would have to go back in the direction that he was standing. And I could have really easily just asked someone uh -huh. or just turned to any of the 20 employees nearby and said, that person is following me and harassing me. And, um, and ensured that they dealt with it before I had to go back out of the building. But I overrided, uh -huh. I overrided uh -huh. my own discomfort and, um, didn't ask for help. So then I was angry at myself for a while <laughs> about that. Um, and then I, you know, I got, I talked to my therapist about it. I worked through that. I was able to really go through my own internal process of just understanding, Oh yeah, like how I'm shaped to do some of that overriding behavior, yeah. even though I have red flags, red flags, red flags happening, mm -hmm. and that that's mm -hmm. a, that's an old shape. Um, <clears throat> and now I'm just like, ugh, trash people. I don't like trash people. <laughs> I'm, it makes me no. upset. Yeah, it makes me upset that they're out there being trashy. And I sent a message, a follow up message to the business. I haven't heard back from them. That's trash. You know, too. and that makes me mad. So I'm angry. I'm like, and now I'm now I'm in this sort of renewed righteous place of of anger about it, of like that person is a trash person. And also that business should have followed up with me via phone by now to be like, we're so sorry that this happened to you. Yeah. Um, but I did order myself some mace. So now I have a like a pink mace container. I was like, I'm not fucking around anymore. No. It's just the conditions are are they are what they are. They are what they are. And I'm really sorry that that happened to you. I'm glad you moved through the cycle of it. I like that, that looking at the self and recognizing and maybe even having compassion for that overriding, right? Because that, I mean, like this culture doesn't work. This whole culture of being able to assault and attack us doesn't work if we haven't been trained to do that and it doesn't mm -hmm. show up, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. All right. On that gloomy note, let's keep the anger flowing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Leah, do you want to go next? Sure, I can go next. Um, so my flume of rage has to do with COVID vaccine distribution and how it connects to the idea of essential workers. So um, something that that is true in New York and probably many, many states is if that you are a person who grows food, if you're a person who feeds mm -hmm. the community, the society, the nation, 
um, unless you have a comorbidity or of a certain age, you are still not eligible for vaccination. And in fact, the majority are not even eligible for government provided COVID testing, which is extremely whack um, and relates to what I see as a fundamental lie when we say essential worker um, as a society, what is really mm -hmm. meant is essential production or essential work, but the person has not ever been seen by the society as essential. And mm -hmm. the whole the whole legacy of folks who've grown this food in the in this country has has been a mm -hmm. legacy of exploited labor, you know, from chattel slavery to convict leasing to sharecropping to the guest worker programs, H2A, Bracero, all of that. And and it continues. And it what infuriates me is the insidious, quiet, seemingly mm -hmm. um, acquiescent way that we as a society, including folks on the left in progressive spaces, just let it go, just let it go. And, and meanwhile, we know that the wheels of everything would grind to a halt if it wasn't for folks stooped over picking this food and bringing this food to our tables. But why, why are these resources that are essential for survival not made available first, right, to the people who um, yes. keep us all fed? So I'm pretty angry about that because I think farm workers deserve so much more, mm -hmm. <laughs> so much more from all of us. Um, yeah, thank and that's you. a whole yeah. career's worth of rage, a whole lifetime's worth of rage. So I'll be holding my, my rage is, is, oh. is dancing the joys. And <laughs> what about you, Nye? I feel like there's so many levels of assault that are fueling my rage fumes, and it's an intense time to be alive, right? We know this, um, and between like the violence that's happening on the border, the like all those that we've been lo continuing to lose to white supremacist violence, um, not to mention like all the pervasive ways white supremacy is is rearing its head right now, and then the um, the multiple pandemics of of COVID and an atrocious wealth gap and state violence. And irreversible climate calamity like has me in a state of rage and heartbreak. Mm -hmm. And it would be one thing if, like, so, so I have a, a worldview, a paradigm that is really steeped in faith in our movements to be able to turn things around. And mm -hmm. my whole life has really worked for me to be like, yes, there's so much effed up stuff going on. But we're transforming it. Like we're the ones we've been waiting for. We're part of this lineage of of people determined to restore balance in our world, and we are about it. And we're not going to finish in our lifetimes, but we're about it. You know, and that's what yeah. keeps me going. I'm in a place right now where I'm losing some faith in our movements, and that's a scary place to be in. Yeah. You know, and it has to do with the fractures and infighting and takedowns and um and disposability of of people in our movement spaces and in our like indispensable leaders and that's what really has me worried i'm like whoa i feel like sometimes we can get so focused on um like hurt feelings that can happen on this scale meanwhile like the world is uh, in flames yes. and mm -hmm. And we need to bring water. And so when that happens, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be addressing like harm as it happens in our communities, but the way that I keep seeing it replicated, I feel like is so destructive and is is ruining us and our capacity for transformation and healing. Hmm. Um, 
so that's that's got my flame kicking right now oh naima i i feel like i've been finding myself having the thought a lot lately with comrades like these who needs an opposition yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm saying we really don't need an opposition right now because we're kind of cannibalizing each other oh it's huge you know, yeah, I, I really you. am grateful that you brought that up because I think that that's one that all four of us, you know, we could have been like, any one of us could say this one and it would feel, you know, like different iterations of the same thing. I keep thinking about, I, I was reading Bell Hooks All About Love the other night, um, chapter eight on community. And it really was, it made me have this thought that people are, are really confusing identity and community right now. and furious, Mm. furious in righteous ways about what's happening to us at the level of identity and intersectional identity, but then turning to, turning to, turning on each other for not showing up as community with each other inside of these massive identity-based groupings. And so I keep seeing it. I'm just like, oh, people are angry. People are treating each other. And under that anger, then people say things to each other like, you're not respecting this identity of mine. You're not respecting that identity of mine. It's like, we are a community. Each of us come into this with, with identity, but community is a space where we have to learn how to care for each other. Like it's not just accountability without care. It has to both end, both end, both end, be there. So this feels tender. This feels like, I think it's going to take us the next decade of really just attuning to this and seeing seeing how do we salvage and how do we deepen and how do we grow something compelling i'm really grateful y'all shared what you shared so deep breath in i just want to invite everybody to read we will not cancel us offers a lot of insight in this in this thing uh Shay, i bought a copy for like everybody in our organization we have a little study group <laughs> thank you thank you i'm really glad to hear that because you know autumn knows that that was not an easy book for me to decide to um write uh, you know the process of it was um, intense. <laughs> I was like, it's going to look like I get canceled to get this book out. But um, <laughs> but I'm so grateful I have because I've, I've undergone now three different waves of attack myself since the book came out. And I keep seeing the iterations. And, you know, I'm just like, we have to start to learn to love through these waves and I hope the book is is part of that conversation. And while we're at, while you're there, read "We Do This Till We Free Us" by Miriam Kaba, because mm-hmm. to me, it's like we're really talking about abolition, and we're talking about it at the level of the interpersonal in movement. But it's a systemic thing that we're actually talking about, mm-hmm. and it's like, like let yeah. Anyway, okay, we mad. We released it a now little we're bit. You know, that deep breath in is so important. And just sort of, I imagine it as a cleansing breath. So just let it come in and out. Right? Like you wash it off of you. And now we want to talk with you about everything that you are. And you can stay really full of joy and you can stay in your rage. Everything that feels relevant, 
for sharing the story of who you are and how you are. Um, but we wanted to start out with origin stories. Where are y'all from? You know, post the star Stardust origin story, we landed in <laughs> <laughs> in Massachusetts is where we grew up. And um, Leah and I were both born in Worcester, but when when I was just a baby, my dad convinced our, our dad convinced our mother to move to rural Western Massachusetts in the middle of a pine forest down a dirt road and buy this one acre of forest with with a trailer on it. And this way we go to raise our family. And soon after our brother, our beloved dear brother, Alan Isaac Peniman, um, came along. And this is where the three of us spent most of our childhood. Um, deep in the woods, under a starry sky with access to bogs and marshes and streams and ferns. And I feel like has, has been really instrumental in kind of like the, the blueprint of our relationship to the natural world. And our mother, who is from Roxbury um, in Boston, Massachusetts, um, after our parents split up, moved back there. And we had some experiences with, you know, summers um, in a more urban environment that I think also is part of what shaped us and where we're from, this kind of duality of experiencing um, like super rural context as well as um, a little sprinkling of city life um, in our early years. You want to add anything, sibling? That's beautiful. That is where we were. I'm glad you mentioned the forest too, because I feel in many ways, the forest was as much a parent as blessed, beautiful Reverend Dr. Adele Smith Peniman and Keith Peniman. Um, and part of this was because as one of the only brown families in this little town, to say that school was challenging would be an understatement. I mean, the racialized bullying was so overt. There was physical assault. There was uh, verbal threats, name calling, like all the things, right? All the things that you would expect in rural Mississippi was rural Massachusetts for us. And so friendships were really challenging and sometimes even dangerous to try to make friends. So we spent all our time in the woods and mm -hmm. felt like Grandma Pine, you know, was that BFF. And Naima and I, thought that we had conjured up our own religion as children. Our parents are, are very religious, very spiritual. And so we developed a religion called Mother Nature, where we would go make offerings and invent song praise for the earth from age like five, six years old. Of course, when we got to be grown and, and learn about Orisha tradition and all of that, you realize we were remembering and not inventing. But I think that <laughs> those years were so formative, this sense of undying devotion to the earth, an undying sense of, uh, you know, justice-filled rage around protection of the earth. I mean, we started creating, we created the Junior Ecologist Kids Club, you know, founded 1987. We were picking up trash, reforesting, interrupting the slaughter of the animals the way we saw it. I mean, just never stopped. We were, we were activists and co-creators in this, trying to make a just world in the way that we understood it. Uh, for as long as I can remember. And that is very much because of the influence of those those sacred forests in that little town. Can you say, can you share a little bit about your family structure and how it's changed over time? I heard, 
heard you lift up your brother and also lifting up your parents and also lifting up the fact that there was a split and just curious to know like how your family structure changed over time and how how that shifted your relationship as siblings we are the children of reverend adele smith peniman who is a haitian black american spiritual leader and civil rights activist and keith peniman who's an environmental defender and a librarian of european descent and they fell in love despite barriers and obstacles um, of age, class, and race, and had all three of us um, children. Leah came first, then came me, Naima, and then our younger brother, Alan. And um, we lived together until I was five, all of us, and then um, that was the year where our parents separated. And I commend our mother and father for despite the shift in their relationship for remaining steadfast in their commitment to, to mother and father and parent us and um, really maintaining a, a friendship and partnership of, of raising us. Even if that looked different from us all living together, you know, our, our father would go to great lengths to make sure that we could um, travel to see our mother, even when she was, you know, hours away um, in mental institutions or halfway houses and um, never miss like a, an important birthday or, or holiday still being willing to like be in the same space and, um, and, and really honor like the, the core of our family identity. Um, and, and, and my, our dad raised, raised us for many years as a, as a single father in terms of figuring out childcare and meals and how the hell to do our hair and <laughs> keep us in school and, um, you know, on his, on his own in, in our backcountry woods existence. And, um, and my mother, our mother, as you know, as she became um, more and more able to do so, um, shared in, in those, in those responsibilities as we got, as we got older and, and I feel like didn't didn't kind of miss a beat of that connection of, of what it meant to belong to each other as family. Thank you for that. That's beautiful. And um, you've mentioned some of these things. They're weaving already into the stories just a bit. But we want to hear how would you describe the political orientation or political orientations of your family? I can speak to that a bit. Um, so our mother, Reverend Adele Smith Peniman, was very involved in the civil rights movement, actually went to register folks to vote, was involved in advocating for medical care for at least one baby who was being denied access to medical care in the white hospitals, um, raised up her voice as a student activist and really continued that throughout her entire career. Um, she was one of the first Black people to be ordained as a minister in the Unitarian Universalist Church and use the pulpit as a platform for advocating for racial and social justice. And, you know, often in spaces where those conversations wow. were 
not as welcome. So at, at great personal risk um, in the suburbs of Boston and rural spaces in Massachusetts was advocating as a black woman to white congregations in the, you know, from the pulpit. Um, and I think also in the way that she, she raised us. I mean, I was looking through old photos and saw this picture of Naima and I and, and Alan at a peace march in like 1986. And I had taken my crayons out and wrote, give peace a chance with all these pictures that I drew. And I don't even know what the, I don't remember what the event was, but, but what I see in that photo is a yes. parent, you know, bringing <laughs> us into, um, into the movement and normalizing the idea of our inherent responsibility to speak up for what's right. And my father, our father, um, yeah. Keith, I feel like my understanding, at least of him as an activist has really uh, unfolded later in life because he's quiet. He's a quiet person. And the way that his activism came out during our childhood was through his guitar playing. I mean, he would write these folk songs um, about the type of society that we want to live in, um, the type of reverence that we want to engage with all of our human and non-human siblings. But he was real busy. He worked many jobs to put food on the table. I saw him tired. I saw him drinking a beer and watching the game at the end of the day. So it's been fun as we've gotten to know him adult to adult to learn that he started the radical high school student newspaper and was gotten all kinds of trouble with the administration for posting, you know, putting anti-war, like burn your draft card stuff that he had majored in, designed his own major in college on the intersection of racial justice and theology, um, that he had founded an anti-racist organization for white folks in college, you know, that he had helped save a mountain okay. near us in our childhood from development from a cell phone company. I was like, when were you doing these okay. things, dad? Like we went on hikes and we learned to love the earth, but he was also very engaged in these ways, often as the behind the scenes uh, administrative person, which we all know how important that is uh, making things happen or the editor making things happen. So so we didn't, um, we don't really get any credit for caring about Tikkun Olam or making the world a better place. It totally came right down our lineage. Our grandfather, you know, marched on Washington. He's, he was Haitian and he was like, I don't understand why black folks aren't in charge of everything like they are in Haiti. Let's get that, pro like, let's get that program going. So he, he was there too. Let's figure that out. Let's figure that out. <laughs> Fascinating. It's so interesting because one of the questions we had coming into this interview was how y'all got politicized and, and whether it was a process that happened kind of distinct from one another or in concert. And hearing your story of your childhood and the lineages in which you were yes. raised, I feel <laughs> like I want to adapt this question a little bit, right? Like, you know, knowing that you're, that you came up in a movement family, right? That you came up in, inside of a movement lineage. I guess what I'm curious about is how you, how you stepped into your own light as movement organizers, as artists, as cultural workers, and how distinct that process was from one another or how much that, you know, by necessity happened in, in concert and cooperation, like in some uh, orchestration. 
Yes, I love that question. And yeah, definitely want to echo and amplify what has been transmitted and passed down to us through our parents, our lineages, and also our greatest teacher, as Leah lifted up, like being immersed in nature really instructed us that we are part of something so much bigger, that we're not an accident, that we're never alone. And so many of the themes that I feel like we bring to our our organizing around adaptation, around interdependence, around nothing being disposable, around transformation come from these lessons that we inherited from direct listening and relationship to the world around us. And I feel like also really lit a fire inside of us to defend what we belong to and what we loved, you know, because nature was such a protector, mother, friend, beloved um, in our cosmology from, from childhood. And so it's starting there and kind of evolving it out. I am grateful for um, the ways as young people, we sensed like a real duty um, to protect nature and understanding how our biodiversity, how our ecosystems were under threat in a very real way. I remember learning about global warming in third grade and freaking out like, oh my God, the world is overheating and (laughs) we can just our dad to let us turn his shed into a clubhouse for our junior ecologist kids club and chalked a mural on the side of of the world as a face with an ice pack on her head and a thermometer. And we were like, we have to do everything in our power to defend our collective future. And it was a very visceral experience. I remember like, um, you know, seeing loggers around us. And I was such a shy kid and so different to my elders, but my voice came out in defense of my, my sibling trees. And I remember approaching this logger, I think I was six or seven, saying, why are you cutting down the trees? You know, and shouting over his machinery. And, um, and similarly in school, like having the courage to stand up to say, we're not going to say this Pledge of Allegiance. We wrote our wow. own in defense yes. of the earth, you know? <laughs> and the principal <laughs> saying like, no, nah, we don't, um, we don't have the capacity or the funding to start a recycling program. Well, you know, we are, we're going to do that. We're going to save up and get a trash barrel and we're going to drag these cans and bottles home on a bus stop and we're going to take them to the dump for coins ourselves. And we're going to reinvest that and letting people like <laughs> we would literally find um, people's addresses out of the phone book. Remember when we used to have those yellow pages and white pages? And we would mail Sorry. people our prescriptions mm-hmm. for defending <laughs> the planet. You know, it was like it was so serious. And <laughs> so this is wow. this is us, you know, as kids. And of course, um, you know, our movement strategies evolved as we became ex- ex- exposed to new information. I remember gobbling up books in a radical bookstore. Um, I remember us learning about, you know, food not yes. bombs and deciding to start our own chapter and like, you know, gleaning food out of the waste stream and making sure that folks in our community who needed it could have hot meals. and you know, getting more and more radicalized in, in high school and then and then college. And I feel that um, I'm, I might be jumping ahead, but I'm thinking about, you know, how our how our commitment and devotion has yeah. stayed very, very steady um, and ways that it's been 
um, been influenced by many, many forces around us that have kind of honed our, our strategies and ways of, of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll pause there in case you want to jump in, Leah, because there's well, so much I'll jump to in share. Right, fast forwarding a little bit. So I say to all of that, I look back and I'm like, what kind of children were we? I mean, we were always dragging those cans home and the soda leaking out the bags and the bus driver getting mad, but we would not, you know, there was no stopping Seriously? the recycling program. But I will say that as, you know, as adults, something that's been really powerful <laughs> to me is I've always felt. Naima, I've never felt competitive with you. And I, in fact, I have felt like the ways that we each engage in the world complement each other and almost mm-hmm. give me permission to be in my lane, right? So all of the years that I was working on the farm, training farmers, working with youth, living a life where I woke up and went to sleep in the same place every day, which is necessary to take care of plants and animals. And you were going around the world, you know, on on tour, just like, speaking and and poetry and murals and culture shifting in this way that was very visible. Um, I was like, okay, it's cool that Nye's doing that because like I'm holding down this piece that needs to happen. And it's cool that I'm doing what I'm doing because Nye's holding down this other piece that needs to happen. And like, you know, our powers combined, right? We are, (laughs) we are the Naima and Leah sisters. And so that's been really beautiful. And now as our, our work has coalesced and started to to overlap even more, um, it's beautiful too. But I will say that even the times when we were pulsing more apart and then together and apart and then together, it still felt like we were part of that same cloth, like threads in that same weaving. Mm-hmm. And what's the age difference between y'all? What's, how many years are between you two? One year, two months, seven days, 18 hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> I love it. This is amazing. Yeah. Cause I'm like there. Yeah. There's such a twinning almost in, in that, um, proximity. Um, it feels that, you know, what I hear as, as y'all are sharing is the beauty of being raised by parents who kind of imbued you with the responsibility for the earth, for the world, for community. And, um, it's definitely something that shows, you know, I, I, I felt like in, in coming to know that both of you existed, that was what was shining and pulsing off of you. It's like, these are two people who really care, um, who really care, who really are turning and figuring out like, what can I do with my small miraculous life to impact the whole? And, um, you started moving in this direction, but we'd love to tease out more about it, which is what currently feels aligned about the work that you're doing in the world, um, especially the places where you're actually literally working together, and then what still feels distinct or different about what you're moving in the world? Yeah, I love this question. I, I feel a lot of steady alignment in our unique focus. Like we are both lifelong lovers and defenders of the earth and her people, you know, devoted to healing and justice on many realms. And like you said, Adrian, like what can we do with our small miraculous lives to do our our tiny part that is essential? And I feel an alignment in the sense that we have a mandate to support people, particularly those of us who have been dispossessed from our sacred relationship to nature to fall back in love with themselves by reconnecting to that larger whole and realizing we're of that same matter and source and that growing our commitment to defend 
life, right? Falling back in love, belonging, reciprocity, and responsibility with the with with life. And I feel like um, our paths, as Leah had mentioned, you know, we so you 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 picture us riding our huffy bicycles around side by side, picking up trash from the side of the road as kids. You know, we were like very much together, and then um, and then cultivated our own universes of of land based healing work um you know Leah developing soul fire soul fire farm and figuring out how to uproot racism in the food system and my being on tour as as a siren and 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 beacon like wake up everybody we got to get organized and really working in these cultural realms and i'm so grateful how about a decade ago now um, a moment of bringing us back together in deep collaboration occurred in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake that devastated our ancestral homeland, our grandfather's homeland of Haiti. And we started collaborating very directly again in, um, in an effort to team up with survivors of that earthquake in a really remarkable village called Komye in Leogan. And to bring together the power of art and healing and farming and land-based work um, as a way to to support in the resilience of this community and like bringing together teams of of farmers and growers and artists and healers from across the African diaspora um, and across Haiti to do this work together. And it reminded me, Leah, like inside of that collaboration, I was just like, oof, yeah. We are we are an unstoppable team. I felt this sense of invincibility, like, and I could feel both um, the complementary aspects of of what you and I bring that are distinct, and I could also feel, in a more palpable way than ever, also the work of our ancestors moving through us. We're so blessed to share the same squad of ancestors who are rooting for us and walking with us and instructing us. And it was inside of that work that I was like. Oh yeah, okay. Like we are instruments and in focusing that, and I appreciate so much. Like, um, you know, the the complementary aspects of what we bring. Like Leah, your superpowers of of being so efficient, and um, meanwhile I'm over here like so detail oriented. You know, like Leah's got the science; she's gonna break down to you how the cells are moving in your body, and and. I'm going to paint a beautiful picture that's going to tell you like the future we move it into, you know, it's like um, ways that we compliment. And, and now we're in a chapter where, so last year, 2020, I'm grateful for the foresight instructions of my ancestors. I made a choice after 18 years of incessant touring and traveling with my art and cultural activism to not tour for the first time in 18 years and to devote a hundred percent of my energy to land-based works to strengthening um, both wild seed as a sanctuary and source of sustenance for BIPOC communities and to be deeper involved in the powerful work that Soul Fire is lifting up and wanting to step in even even more deeper into our, our programming and training work. And um, thank goodness for the timing, you know, that intuition came like, through wow. COVID and wow. then the world just shut down, you know, it was like everything was canceled anyways. And I'm like, here I am on the land. <laughs> close to my family 
And talk about pictures that paint reality. I remember a drawing of crayon that Leah and I made when we were children with a house with a door on one side with her and her family and a door on the other side with me and my family. And it was like, this is this was our vision for the future of like this coming together. And wow. Leah, I'll pass it back to you to, if you want to take it from here of like kind of what this um this new chapter that that we've stepped into just in the past couple of years of of creating our collaboration again. Leah's like, I'm too busy crying. <laughs> I know, I'm really crying. Just thinking about drawing that picture and our wildest dream coming true of building our life together with our families here on this land. It's, you know, and actually I'm thinking, I mean, I will talk about practical things about what we do because um, that is my role in the relationship and in the movement is to be mad practical, but we actually had a divination done. So, so I'm a, a practitioner of um, Yoruba religion and Ianifa and um, had a divination done because we were going through some challenges and some questions around our work and what are the next steps. And one of the messages that came through um, in this Dafa, this Ifa divination was about these, these two siblings um, who were meant to bring blessing to the community. And the way they did it was to go deep into the forest and to kindle this lamp, this fire, and that this light would bring attract and bring forth all the blessings for the community. And I remember that coming through and just looking over at Nye, like, this is the unit. This is the sacred unit um, for me is to be with you. So, I mean, at Soulfire, it's, I can't, I just can't believe you say yes. So Naima is the program director for Soulfire Farm. So the immersion programs where people come onto the land and learn how to farm, the online 3D where you can skill up your carpentry or your beekeeping or whatever on a one-off, your Spanish language programming, the video series, the youth programs, the tours, like oh, that's wow. nigh, which is amazing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I'm the farm manager here. So I take care of the plants and the animals and the soil organisms. And that's been actually a road for me because as a co-executive director and founder, my work was getting increasingly administrative, increase, increasingly managerial and increasingly like public facing and visible. And all of that is super duper necessary work. And I'm also like a mad scientist, super nerd, <laughs> solitary person. And it was, it was and is draining my yes. soul energy. I'm like, I don't want to. No. Yeah, no, I'm not a people like I love humans. Right. And I, I defend humans, but I'm, I'm like a tree yes. person. <laughs> and I want to talk about uh, primocanes and fluorocanes and the pruning patterns, like that's really my home. So, um, so part of Naima coming is, is not only lending your, your brilliance to the organization, but it's also been part of building out a team that allows us to be in our particular lane and our particular destiny, instead of trying to do all the things that we can do, but not necessarily that we should be doing, um, uh -huh. in the orb. Say that. <laughs> Amazing. And, I was to say about Naima, she also makes everything that she touches more beautiful. So whether it's a logo, a sign, a process, a, a facilitation mechanism, like everything that Naima touches is elevated in its beauty. And that is truly the gift I think that you that you bring to this work. And I love mm. to witness. <laughs> Someone must have Venus and Libra. Okay. Um, well, actually, it's such a good segue into one more question that we wanted to ask you, um, which is, what do people need to understand about your sibling? Oh, let me speak on it. My sibling, Leah, is... <laughs> 
honestly the most devoted, generous, unwavering, brilliant, thoughtful, responsive, and hardworking person I have ever known and has for the first, but my first memory just really devoted your, her life to be a servant of spirit, to really like listen to the messages that are coming through, um, to be a student of the earth, such a devoted studier and sharer, powerful teacher, and willing to shoulder an enormous load to support in the proliferation of our movements. And I, I want, I want the world to, to see and understand what a deep place of, of care for, and love for our, for our communities, for our people, for, for our singular sacred earth that this springs from. Like, I know how genuine that drive is. And, and to hold that and with so much integrity and humility, um, as well as unapologetic excellence, like just bringing your full self to everything you do is, um, I just think is, is an inspiration, not just for me, but for so many. And I feel so grateful after all these years that we're still collaborating to defend justice and help heal our world. And thank you for giving me and so many people strength and, and hope. Thank you. Hmm. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> thank you, Nai. So I could turn all those adjectives back on Nagima, but what came to mind, and I'm just going to say it, even though yeah. it might be an unorthodox way to answer the question, is that um, Naima was born months before um, her due date. Our mother uh, became very ill, had preeclampsia, was on bed rest and trying to hold on to this pregnancy. And um, the doctors were not optimistic. You know, this is this is just into the 80s, you know, so it was a different world. Um, and it didn't look like Naima would survive. She was, you know, born months early, was just two pounds, mm. tiny, tiny, not able to breathe and eat on her own and spent uh, over 30 days in the NICU in an incubator uh, with us praying and hoping and believing against odds that she would exist. And, and people, the doctors were saying, even if she did survive, she would probably have severe learning challenges, um, physical challenges, would not be able to live the life that our parents might have imagined for her. And look at this freaking mm -hmm. miracle in front of you. Like, look mm -hmm. at this miracle. Such a strong, healthy, brilliant gift mm -hmm. to the world. Um, and I feel like all the forces of nature and all the ancestors conspired to give you your strength, knowing um, that you had a powerful destiny that needed to manifest. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're a miracle. That is something I want to say. But I also want folks to remember for you and, and whenever we see a strong warrior person, that there is a vulnerability, a tenderness, a weakness somewhere in that story, you know, whether it is traumatic, a traumatic birth and, and the origin or the grief that we might be holding or invisible illness or, or different ability, um, trauma, like that we all are fully human and that we all, including you, Naima, who are like so badass, have our vulnerabilities and need to be treated with utmost 
respect, tenderness, care, and mutual humanity. Um, so that is my prayer for you that people see your strength, but also see that all it took to be that Thank strong. Thank you, big sister. <laughs> that touched me deep. I Thank love you. that. I want to hold that mirror too. I love all hmm. of that. I know. I'm just like, I love y'all. I love your love for each other. Um, and I want folks to know about these siblings that this is the tip, tip, tip of the iceberg. Like, this is, you know, we. I feel like half mm-hmm. of the things you said, I'm like, I could deep dive there for three hours. I could deep dive there for three hours. Like there's so much, um, so much richness to both of your individual contributions and to the contribution that you're making as a power duo of siblings. So I just want to deep bow in, in respect and admiration and honor the work that you're doing and that you do it together. Um, we don't take it for granted as, as sibling students of yours, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so before we go, we wanted to check out top culture, which is this beautiful thing we've been doing where we're like, what are you doing? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What art are you loving? Are you reading something? And it generally plays out where I'm like, here's the thing that's happening today in the culture. And then Autumn's like, here's something from five years ago that I just saw and Mm -hmm. I like it. So it doesn't have to be. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. It doesn't like, have to be current at all. It doesn't have to be current. It's just like it's something that is for you, the top cultural experience you're having right now. Um, and I can go first. I can I can dive us into the waters here. Yeah, do it. Yeah. So take us there. The today culture thing is that Little Nas X released a music video today called Montero Call Me By Your Name. For those of you who may not know, Little Nas X did the song Old Town Road, which was like a mega hit. Oh my God, that's who that is? That's who that is, right? Old Town Road. And it was like a hip hop country extravaganza that like became the hit that everybody was playing. So then Little Nas X came out um, as like, I am very gay and y'all need to understand just how gay I am. All of you conservative white Americans who are like rocking with my Old Town Road song. (laughs) And then today Montero drops and it is the I think one of the gayest things I've ever witnessed in my life like it is a magical science fictional world in which he is navigating desire and erotic energies and there's like a falling from there's like a heaven and falling and I'm telling you he pole dances from heaven down into the fires of hell and like twerks on the de- devil and is like so free. And I mean, I've just, I'm just like, wow, <laughs> like I wasn't ready for this. Um, it, I, it left me feeling mm, overheated. Um, it, it's just very, like, there's a lot <laughs> happening. So I want to uplift that video for people who are just like, oh, I need, I need some of that heat and that fire. Right. If you um, need to kindle the flame inside you today. Exactly. And <laughs> since we're kindling flames, I think I may have already talked about Stacey Abrams' um, erotic, uh, romantic <laughs> novels. Um, I've talked about it, but I've also been reading more. And so I want to let you know that hidden, hidden sins and secrets and lies are also wonderful, romantic, 
Black novels. And she is about to drop her first novel as herself, like not under the pen name, but as Stacey Abrams. I think it's called When Justice Sleeps. So we'll see if it's actually romance or adventure or whatever else. But I started this off kind of in a joking way, like I'll read a romance by Stacey Abrams. And now I'm like fully hooked. And I'm like, who else writes Black romantic novels? Like it's really... Uh It like is the best wind down at the end of the day. I'm just like, whatever serious things happen in the world, it's so, it's so good. Our uncle writes black romantic novels. I'm going to send you. His real name is David Smith. I called you out, Uncle David, (gasps) but they're really, really, really steamy. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) He's proud. He's proud. It's cool. (laughs) You just outed him. I just feel like. All of this is like such, I feel like all of this is such affirmation because I keep, I have these moments because celebrity culture is so whack and so horrific. And so I have these moments all the time where I'm like, dang, I should have done a pen name. And then I could have like a pen name that's releasing books. And then my real name, just living my life with my plants and my Mario brothers. But every time this happens, I'm like, pen names don't work. Everybody's just like Stacey Abrams pen name book, you know? So it's just <laughs> to me, but I really recommend like, yeah. There's nothing like the end of a day getting into the bath and just reading about these Black people throbbing. I mean, they're just all throbbing nonstop for each other for 300 pages, just like you <laughs> brush your shoulder and she pulsed. And I'm just like, dang, like who's walking around like that? Like how do you sustain that pulsing <laughs> energy nonstop all the time? It's just awesome. So that's my top culture. <laughs> who's got next? <laughs> I guess Autumn takes us back five years. I'm going to take us back like 6,000 years. I will say when you asked this question, I started literally sweating. Like my pits are stinky because I'm like, oh my God, pop culture. I don't even know. I better Google something. I'm so out of, but here's the thing. I study, I study ancient texts. Like I study sacred literature. So what I'm into really right now is um, the Oduifa Ogbe Otora Ogbe Alara, which really focuses on good character. Um, and how it is our personal responsibility to throughout our entire lifetimes just work on our our patience, our composure, our generosity, our respect, our wisdom, our knowledge. And there's these amazing stories that go along with that where good character or Iwa Puele is made into, uh, is personified and like goes through life and goes through all these interactions, schooling people about how it is that they need to take responsibility for their own character. Wondrous. That sounds dream. See, that we've never had someone take us thousands of years back. And I just, I feel (laughs) geeked about this. Thank you so much. And we'll include these. If you text it to us, we'll put it in the show notes so other people can dive along the culture pathways that you're opening. Autumn, Naima, who's got? I love it. I'll jump in. Cause I want Autumn to have the finale. Cause I was also like, oh, pop culture, this ain't really my strong suits. And I love Leah that she took us back to yes. the sacred literature. Um, Cause yeah, you'll often find me like in any moment of time I have to be listening to something while I'm cooking or entertaining myself. I'm like, ooh, let me listen to this conversation with Baldwin and Malcolm X, or like listen to some Audre Lorde poetry, you know, <laughs> like a little absent on the pop culture. I would say the exceptions are. Beyonce be getting me, Lemonade, Homecoming. Um, I was just like, yes, I'm in it. I'm in the mainstream current and I'm loving it. (laughs) And also Queen Sugar is a series. I was like, 
I was like off TV for decades. I just didn't even bother looking. Queen Sugar brought me into the magic of current television. I'm like, what? I can relate to this, all these themes and characters. In Genesis 3.19, we're dust and dust you shall return. Amen, Brother Ernest. May you rest in peace. Nova, Charlotte, Ralph Angel. And what I'll name for the current current, and I'll mention that I love that so many of the things that felt like fringe to me before, or people that I've loved and cherished for a long time that are coming more into into the knowing, into being known um, more widely, including Alexis Pauline Gums, who I remember from my first tour in Durham, like 2003, and like kicking it in black feminist church in her living room and just being like, yes, everything you write is like gospel to me. And I am devouring and cherishing every drop yes. of Undrowned, Alexis Pauline Gum's latest book. And my favorite place to read it is in the bathtub. Yes. And I just <laughs> love feeling the energy of the dolphins echolocating while I'm, you know, getting my black feminist knowledge, you know, just like swirling around me in the bath. So that is, that's what's lighting me up and, and providing my, my cultural bath and pop right now. (laughs) I love that. Thank you. Awesome. I will bring us home with the most specific moment um, and fairly current. Okay. Adrian is going to be proud of me. My top culture moment is Oprah Winfrey's fake <laughs> shock in response to Meghan Markle telling her that some white people in the royal family asked about the color of her future mm. baby's skin. There, in this, this interview that was viewed by millions of people, Meghan Markle divulges what I guess people thought maybe was like a shocking note that when she was pregnant with her baby, members of the royal family commented on how potentially dark the skin of the baby would be. And Oprah goes, (laughs) what? (laughs) And it's so amazing because she's not shocked. She's just teaching the white people in the audience that they should be shocked. (laughs) Which is like Oprah's entire career is like teaching white people how to actually react instead of how they react, right? And I just, God, I love her. I love Oprah Winfrey. I love me some Oprah Winfrey. And I don't, and I don't, I don't really follow her work now. Like I don't listen to her podcast. I don't, you know, but, but sometimes these moments will make their way through the internet to me. And it just takes me right back, takes me right back to my childhood. And I'm like, yes. Oprah Winfrey holding it down by modeling for white people what they are supposed to actually be feeling. Autumn, I really, really love that one. Um, and like, because it is so precise and it is so specific. And that Meghan Markle interview, it feels like a really, like, and Patrice Colors has been making this connection that it's like, that interview is actually super relevant for all the things we're talking about in terms of how we're attacking and destroying and tearing down black women in movement right now, black women in the world right now. Um, Just understanding like what celebrity culture sets up as a, as a guillotine, as a trap door um, for people who step into leadership in any way. 
And so I'm really glad you brought that in. And something I want to say, I don't think this is top culture. It just is like an honorable mention, which is I love Justin Bieber. And recently Justin Bieber dropped an album called Justice that has um, Martin Luther King quotes on it. But then all the rest of the content is, it seems to be love songs about his wife. And I can't, I can't, (laughs) the shock that you're showing, that's the shock that Oprah that's the shock that Oprah was showing, right? Like, oh my God, <laughs> right? I just want to name that this happened. Like, because I, we could overlook it. We could not know it happened. Some people will never know it happened. Um, I can't quite figure out how I feel. You know, I'm like, the songs are sweet. And then this interlude will come on where it's like, we need to do. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't. I don't know how you got permission to do this. <laughs> That's the part that, that I think is the main question I have is who who was like, yeah, you can use these snippets, but none of the songs talk about, well, and I haven't listened to the whole album because the snippets were too distracting because then it would go like, I love you so much, wife. You know, like that's what his, his all of his songs for the past few years have been like, I'm so in love with my wife um, and she loves me even though I make mistakes. That's, which I think is a great topic area, but I just wanted to throw that in the mix that that's also happening out there. So, Wow. I feel like maybe enough decades have passed that like recordings of Martin Luther King's speeches are now like, what is the thing that happens where it becomes like common? Oh yeah. Where it's like, this is, this is no, no one. It's like the yeah, Bible like or every, something. Anyone can quote it anytime, anywhere. The <laughs> <laughs> so the culture is happening now. All right. We're finished. We're finished. Thank you so much, Leah and yeah. Naima. Thank you for kicking off our sibling mm, series. Thank you so, so much. Thank we could you. do a whole series just with y'all. Maybe we will someday. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredible thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. Thank you. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the magnificent Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. 